Hello, everyone. Before we begin, uh, I have an announcement. I'm doing another live event. I've been doing a few of those, and on September 7th, I'm going to be at Rose City Comic Con talking about the Comics Code Authority. For years, during the 1960s, 70s, into the 2000s, comic books like Marvel, DC, Archie had content restrictions. They were not allowed to show, you know, sex, blood, gore, that kind of thing. But they were also prohibited from showing things like vampires, werewolves, supernatural stuff. The Comics Code Authority was this constantly evolving governance about what comics could and could not show. And it does stem from moral panics and people freaking out about comics and going, think of the children and all that. And it also stems from jockeying within the industry, from superhero comics trying to shut down horror comics that were becoming popular in the 1950s. And eventually the Comics Code Authority, well, it outlived its usefulness, people worked around it, it was filled with loopholes, and it was declared dead in the 2000s. So that's on September 7th at 3.30 at Rose City Comic Con. It is part of Rose City Comic Con programming, so you do need a ticket to the thing to get in. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. I keep a Google Doc of episode ideas for this show, and whenever I see something that looks fascinating or weird or funny or macabre, I write it down, and I have no shortage of episodes that I want to do, which is great. One of the first things I wrote on this Google Doc was Roanoke. Because if you're going to do a podcast that's all about weird or mysterious or striking historical incidents, Roanoke is a big one. It is one of America's founding mysteries. But I kept putting it off. It seemed too big, in some ways too obvious, and always found something else to do an episode on. And in a way, I'm kind of glad I put it off till now, because I recently read an excellent and fascinating book about the Roanoke Colony. I reviewed Andrew Lawler's book, The Secret Token for the Portland Mercury, and I will link to my review over on weirdhistorypodcast.com. And it was great. There was a lot there. And after reading his book, which I heartily endorse, I thought, I finally have to do it. I finally have to do a Roanoke episode. So, Roanoke. It is the late 1500s, Europeans have known about the New World for under a century, but they are already starting to explore and colonize it. Spain is well underway, with colonies in the Caribbean, Florida, Central America, and all of that, and Britain is behind. England is not really a player on the scale that Spain is, but it wants to catch up. And the guy that Queen Elizabeth appoints will be her colonizer-in-chief, for North America is Sir Walter Raleigh. She gives him pretty much an exclusive deal to set up colonies in North America, to explore, to find things, to exploit things, to mine for riches and all of that, and it is a use-it-or-lose-it type deal. Queen Elizabeth makes clear to him that he needs to get colonies going, or 
she will give that exclusive contract to somebody else. Now, Sir Walter Raleigh, not really going to be important to our story at all. He did not really have any kind of direct interactions with the Roanoke colony. Uh, he's more of like a hands-off, high-level CEO. He never actually set foot in North America. He dispatched some subordinates to do his exploration for him. He did do some stuff in South America, but again, not important to our story. Anyways, Raleigh's subordinates, whose names are not important here, got to North America and initially made peaceful contact with the Native Americans there. And two of the Native Americans, belonging to the Croatoan tribe, remarkably agreed to get on their boats and go to England. These guys were named Wanchese and Monteo. Now, Wanchese would come to regret his decision. When they got to England, he apparently didn't enjoy it. And he began to see himself as more of a captor than a guest. And I can't really blame him. He just wanted to go home the entire time he was there. However, Monteo, it seems, got something out of his study abroad experience. He learned English. He also worked with a local scholar to teach him the Algonquin language. He was apparently something of a hit at Queen Elizabeth's court, and he might even have been made a lord. There is a single document that says that he was christened in Roanoke and made the lord thereof. We don't know if he was actually made a lord, but that would be cool. Anyway, Monteo ended up talking to a lot of the high-ups in Elizabethan England, talking to them about colonization, where they could set up, what the land was like, all of that. And that gave Raleigh a better idea of what a potential colony would look like. The first iteration of Roanoke was established in 1585, and it didn't go well. Those first colonists almost immediately got violent with some of the local Native Americans. Uh, not the Croatoan, this was another group called the Sakotan. One of them had taken a silver cup and the colonists said, hey, you stole our shiny object, and for that, burn, pillage, and destroy your village, which seems to lack proportionality. The Sakotan fought back. Uh, by that point, the colonists had built a fort. The Sakotan attacked it. The colonists were able to repel the attack, but things weren't going well. Later on in 1586, Sir Francis Drake just happened to be in the area, you know, privateering and Sir Francis draking around. And he said, hey, how are you guys doing? Uh, anyone want to lift back to England? And several of those initial Roanoke colonists said, yes, yes, we do. They boarded Drake's vessels and they left their colonial life behind. The next year in 1587, the Roanoke colony got something of a soft reboot. This one would be under new management specifically under a guy called John White and Monteo. Monteo and Wanchese were back in their homeland, probably to Wanchese's relief, and John White would be governor, and Monteo would be the guy who would be teaching a bunch of middle-class urban English people all about hunting, fishing, foraging, and all of that. One note about John White, being the governor of the Roanoke colony is not what he's best known for. He's probably best known for his artwork. He sketched a lot of the Native Americans he met in the New World. And last episode, I mentioned Martin Frobisher coming back from his Arctic explorations with dead Inuit. 
John White also sketched them, though when he sketched them, he made them look alive, not dead like they were. And John White's drawings are some of the earliest visions we have of how the English saw Native Americans. I will link to some of his drawings over at weirdhistorypodcast.com. Most of his work now resides in the British Museum. You should absolutely go look at it to give you a picture of what the English saw when they were looking to the New World. However, later in 1587, White said, Guys, I'm going to go back to England, get us some more assistance from the powers that be, hang on, and I will be right back. However, he was not right back. Uh, When he had gotten back to England, he was sort of dismayed to learn that his homeland had gone to war with Spain. And embarking out onto the Atlantic during the Anglo-Spanish War would not have been a good idea. Chances are that crossing the Atlantic meant a Spanish vessel finds you, kills you, and takes your stuff. So White was not able to get back to the colony until 1590. And when he did, that's when our story really begins. Because when John White went back to the Roanoke colony, he found that there was no Roanoke colony. Nothing. No people. No buildings. No signs of struggle, even. Just one word carved on a tree. Croatoan. Nothing remained. Now, you might think that this is where the mystery begins. But, seeing this, John White thought, hey, everything seems fine here, got back on his vessel, and he left. Later on, England, realizing that you lose people sometimes, you lose people, ships, colonies, whatever, it's the late 1500s, stuff happens. They just founded a new colony, Jamestown, and went from there. It's not like post-1590, Elizabeth's court was suddenly all aflutter over the lost colony. It's not like somebody said, oh my god, a colony disappeared. Begin the search! Where are they? No. At the time, it wasn't considered a big, deep, unsolved mystery. See, White and the colonists had an agreement. If they needed to go somewhere else, they would just write down where they went. He saw on that tree the word... Croatoan. That was the name of Manteo's people, and an island, now called Hatteras, that was about 50 miles south. White, probably thinking that the colonists were over at Manteo's place, thought everything looks good, and left. He was on the older side. Shortly after he got back to England, he died and was never able to return to North America. So from the perspective of the guy who found the mystery it probably didn't look like a mystery. But later on, a whole bunch of elaboration was layered onto Roanoke in terms of romanticizing history, creating an origin story for the United States, white supremacy plays a big part, and a lot of people get really into a figure called Virginia Dare, a figure in American history who did essentially nothing but became a symbol for a lot of things. And Roanoke, as we know it, begins in 1834, with a historian called George Bancroft. He published a work called A History of the United States, a gigantic multi-volume set that you would think, in 1834, would be a little shorter, given that there wasn't very much history of the United States. But Bancroft was really into turning Roanoke into this kind of 
shady, shadowy, southern gothic mystery. He goes on about it for some time, but this is the relevant part. By the way, relevant fact for this passage, White had a daughter and granddaughter at Roanoke. And so when he came back, he wasn't just coming back to a bunch of random people he was in charge of. He was coming back to his daughter, his son-in-law, and his granddaughter. And so I think for him, he was truly satisfied that people were safe with Manteo when he saw the word Croatoan written on a tree. But that's just my hunch. Anyway, that's relevant to this passage. Bancroft writes, quote, White would return to search for his colony and his daughter, and the island of Roanoke was a desert. An inscription on the bark of a tree pointed to Croatoan, but the season of the year and the dangers from storms were pleaded as an excuse for an immediate return. Had the emigrants already perished, or had they escaped with their lives to Croatoan, and, through the friendship of Manteo, become familiar with the Indians? The conjecture has been hazarded that a deserted colony, neglected by their own countrymen, were hospitably adopted into the tribes of the Hatteras Indians, and became amalgamated with the sons of the forest. This was the tradition of the natives at a later day, and was thought to be confirmed by the physical character of the tribe, in which the English and the Indian race seem to have been blended. Raleigh long cherished a hope of discovering some vestiges of their existence, and though he had abandoned the designs of colonizing Virginia, he yet sent at his own charge, and it is said, several times, to search for his liegemen. But it was all in vain. Imagination received no help in its attempts to trace the fate of the colony of Roanoke. Unquote. And then there's more because Bancroft likes his words. But it's very telling that this doesn't really become a story. This doesn't really become romanticized until much, much later on. The mystery of Roanoke wasn't a mystery for the people who lived it. It was a mystery for the people who thought about it. And Roanoke produced another thing, an icon, Virginia Dare. Virginia Dare is the first person of English ancestry born in what would become the United States. She is not the first person of European ancestry born in the United States or even North America. At the time, there were plenty of Spanish settlements, and there were plenty of people of Spanish ancestry who were already existing in the Americas. However, the children of Spaniards, many of them who also had Native American ancestry, many of whom were also Catholic, is less interesting to a nation trying to conceive of itself as white, Anglo-Saxon, and Protestant than the first white Protestant baby born in what would become the United States. Virginia Dare was John White's granddaughter. We know next to nothing about her. We know that she was born in Roanoke. We know that she was baptized. We know nothing else. Despite knowing nothing about her, though, or maybe because of it, Virginia Dare would later become heavily romanticized. George Bancroft made Roanoke a thing, a mystery, a southern gothic romance. And Virginia Dare became the kind of wide-eyed ingenue, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed waif beset by danger in the New World, danger in the form of the wilderness, and danger in the form of the people who lived there. Yeah, this is all going to get kind of uncomfortable and racist. And probably one of the biggest things contributing to this Virginia Dare myth was a very long poem by a woman called Sally Southall Cotton. 
She was a North Carolina socialite and organizer and general upper-class fancy person who was married to a former Confederate general. And she wrote this poem called The White Doe, all about Virginia Dare as this symbol of white Southern Christian womanhood amidst all this creeping barbarism. And the poem paints Virginia Dare as this kind of single point of American Christian light within this kind of barbaric forest. And I'll confess, I was not able to get through it. It's really bad. It's really long. I tried to read the whole thing for the podcast, and I just couldn't because it's dumb and I hated it. But here's the relevant racist part. Cotton writes, quote, she whose mind bore in its dawning impress of developed races to the rude, untutored savage seemed dividedly dowed, that's endowed, there's an apostrophe there for some reason, with reason, she the heir of civilization, they the slaves of superstition, gave her a silent reverence, growing better with such giving. Oft she told them of the cross sign made by Banteo before them, when he talked of his own nation was a symbol of a spirit great and good and wise and loving. He who kept their maize fields fruitful, he who filled the sea with fishes, he who made the sun warm them and sent game to feed his children, unquote. That he, of course, is talking about the Christian God. And this poem, despite being long and boring, was a big hit in the 1890s. And Sally Southall Cotton apparently went on book tour wearing this white doe skin, because a big part of the Virginia Dare myth is that she eventually turned into a white doe. Eventually, somehow, she is pierced by a silver arrow, her blood falls onto some grapes, and she is transformed into this immaculate white doe that ends up wandering through and, I don't know, being this beneficent spirit of the American South. Again, this is all from a historical figure who we know nothing about. We know basically just that she was born and that she was baptized. But that emptiness also kind of makes her a template. It provides a blank slate for this image of immaculate, Protestant, white, American womanhood. And one of the ways that Virginia Dare has been described is as the Protestant Madonna, the American Protestant version of the Virgin Mary. Virginia Dare, though, was more than just the subject of a long, boring, racist poem. She was also a brand icon. Uh, she was on tobacco, and more notably, on wine. Prior to Prohibition, Virginia Dare wine was one of the most popular wines in the United States, and the label featured a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, babonated Virginia Dare. Uh, apparently, it tasted very sugary. Prohibition put an end to Virginia Dare wine's popularity, but it came back. Francis Ford Coppola, yes, the guy who made The Godfather, makes wine now, and he acquired the Virginia Dare license. So he owns that brand name now, and he's still using it, which is frankly weird. Anyway, less racistly, Virginia Dare was also the subject of one of the biggest archaeological uh, kerfuffles around the Roanoke colony. In 1937, a tourist in North Carolina found a stone that supposedly described dire circumstances for the Dare family. It was supposedly written by Eleanor Dare, Virginia's mother, noting that her husband and daughter had both died. And 
the stone entreated anyone who found it to alert her father, John White. This seemed to be something of an SOS call, something of a desperate carving by Eleanor Dare, who had lost her husband and daughter and was now beset on all sides by the vicissitudes of the wilderness, and other stones popped up. Other stones also supposedly written by Eleanor Dare. Stones detailing a long, drawn-out, complicated, and grisly fate of the Roanoke colonists. These dare stones, for a brief moment at the end of the 1930s and very beginning of the 1940s, seemed to be one of the biggest archaeological finds in American history. If these stones were real, suddenly we'd see Roanoke in a whole new light. We'd see the story of Roanoke and Virginia Dare, an American icon, in a whole new light. If these stones were real, which they weren't. In 1941, the Saturday Evening Post, doing a good job as investigative journalist, found out that all of the stones, the Dare stones, were the creation of a Georgian stonecutter named Bill Eberhardt. And this guy, Bill Eberhardt, he had previously done this with making fake Native American relics. And, the Post noted, that he had a kind of a complicated scheme to maybe get Cecil B. DeMille the filmmaker who made like the Ten Commandments and stuff like that, into adapting this story of the Roanoke colonist that he fabricated for the Dare Stones, potentially into a historical epic. That obviously never ended up happening. But I still haven't answered the question implied by the first part of this podcast about what happened to the Roanoke colonist. Because even though John White might have been satisfied that they went to Hatteras Island, or Croatoan, we really haven't found much corroborating evidence of that. The Roanoke colony itself left no trace. No buildings, no corpses, nothing. It looks like the colonists were really good at teardown. They took everything with them. They were thorough. And we haven't really found anything else in the surrounding area. No other archaeological evidence from other sites they might have gone. And we have found nothing like an Elizabethan settlement on Hatteras. So, here are a bunch of hypotheses about what maybe ended up happening to the Roanoke colonist. One, they were killed by the Spanish. At the end of the 1580s, England and Spain were at war, and it is entirely conceivable that the Spanish, finding an English colony, would sack it, pillage it, burn it, and capture or kill everyone there. However, when John White saw that word Croatoan, he had also arranged that the colonists would put a cross next to it if they were in any distress. He did not find the agreed-upon sign of distress. So it looks like Spanish raids are not what was responsible for the colony's abandonment. Also, had the Spanish gone in there, pillaging, burning, you know, sticking swords into people, all of that, they probably would have noted it. They kept logs of all the people they killed and stuff they took, and a raid on Roanoke does not appear in any Spanish sources that we know of. There is also the possibility that the Roanoke colonists were killed by the Sakotan. They were the Native Americans who the early Roanoke colonists got in a kerfuffle with over a silver cup, and things were not great with them. However, again, no sign of distress at the colony. And, 
Had they gone to Hatteras and hung out with Manteo's folks, it would have been less likely that the Sakotan would have been able to find them 50 miles south or attack them if they were under the aegis of the Croatoan. Then there's killed by nature. Maybe they were just eaten by a hurricane. It happens. There's a possibility that they got in a boat, went somewhere else, tried to go to Newfoundland or back to England or wherever, and maybe they made it or maybe the boat just kind of sank. That's possible. But we keep ignoring the most likely scenario, that the Roanoke colonist, under the guidance of Manteo, took down their buildings, packed up their things, went 50 miles south, and set up shop with the Croatoan Native Americans, integrated into that community, and lived out their lives. And yet, when generations of Americans have looked at Roanoke, that has been very hard to accept. One of the reasons why I liked Andrew Lawler's book, The Secret Token, so much is that he grapples with the issues of race around the Roanoke colony, how Virginia Dare became a rallying cry for white supremacists and a symbol of white American womanhood during the worst part of Jim Crow, and also how white American historians just don't want to countenance the idea that these early English settlers could have put their Englishness aside in the New World. Lawler writes, quote, Even the respected historian Quinn, an Irishman, was not wholly comfortable with the idea of English settlers casting off their Anglo heritage. He argued that most of the colonists created a proper English village near the Chesapeake and fretted about those left behind to the south. We are forced to accept as fact that they became Indians themselves, and with their children and grandchildren, wholly so, he writes with a tone of obvious reluctance. He only grudgingly admitted a handful of them may have contributed some genes to the Hatteras Indians. This abiding unwillingness to embrace this idea that the colonists assimilated with the Croatoan, like the stories about the virginal Virginia Dare, reflects centuries of deep anxiety about sex between the races, particularly between European women and non-European men. Unlike the Spanish, Portuguese, and French, who, to who tolerated interracial mixing to a varying degree, the English in the New World moved quickly to punish those who strayed. Virginia had a loophole called the Pocahontas Exception that allowed members of the white upper classes to retain their status while claiming the Powhatan princess as their ancestor. Those laws remained in effect as late as 1967, when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against Virginia's statute banning interracial marriages. The woman in that famous case, Loving v. Virginia, was of mixed African Algonquin ancestry. Unquote. Lawlor also adds later, the Roanoke settlers didn't vanish. They were lost in order to veil the likely but inconvenient truth that the survivors simply ceased to be white. That's taking it fairly far, but what he's saying there is that in that new environment, their Englishness would not have been the superior way of life. The things that they knew about living in urban England wouldn't have helped them in the New World. The skills that they needed to hunt, fish, and gather food would have been the skills that they learned from the Croatoan. The lifestyle that would have allowed them to survive would have been the lifestyle of the Native Americans that they met. And it is entirely conceivable that the lives they lived would have been full and happy ones, meeting and having children with and integrating with and disappearing into 
the local Native American population. But later on, it was more convenient for white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Southerners to believe that Virginia Dare turned into a white doe than it was to believe that the first person of English ancestry in what would become the United States could possibly have gone on to live amongst and have sexual relationships with Native Americans. But that is far more likely than any imagined innocence of Virginia Dare. We don't know this for sure. This is an educated guess. But if you're going to be a student of history, you have to be comfortable with ambiguity, and you have to be comfortable with educated guesses. You have to be comfortable with not knowing, and with just rough sketches and probabilities. And you also have to think, why is something an icon? Why is something a story? Why is something held to be important? Why is something considered a mystery or a story, while so many other uncounted stories are not fretted over? The story of Roanoke tells us about the United States, and its telling later on tells us about what the United States has valued. However, at the risk of sounding preachy, I find a certain amount of inspiration of one of America's founding mysteries being a tale of integration and survival. The Roanoke colonists learning a new language, a new way of life, a new religion, a new mode of being after they had crossed an ocean. I can think of few things more American than that. As always, we are a listener-supported podcast. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com to become a monthly supporter. Thank you, all of you who do that every single month. I appreciate it immensely. Go on Apple Podcasts, give us ratings and reviews. That helps people discover the show. Follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, at Joe Streckert, J-O-E-S-T-R-E-C-K-E-R-T, and the show is on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. Once again, please join me at Rose City Comic Con on September 7th at 3.30, and I'll be talking about the Comics Code. I'll hope to see you then. Bye. Bye.